Yeah, Shirley Bassey and Goldfinger. We had some had to have something Welsh to start the hour, didn't we, Daniel? Yeah, well, like I say, I enjoy Shirley Bassey in small doses, so I've got no problem with that at all. So you've been rediscovering your Welsh roots <laughs> ready for today. Well, I did used to live near the Welsh border, because, of course, I grew up in sort of Cheshire, Shropshire, so yes. uh, I came across Wales quite often. Yeah, right. You've got a little story to tell on that yeah, one, Yeah, because um, that song, um, Shirley Bassey's rendition of Goldfinger, written by John Barry, won the Oscar for Best Original Song back in 1964, back when it was possible for the Bond series to be worthy of Oscars. And there is a legend, urban myth, maybe it's a true story, that after John Barry had collected his, his Oscar, he went into uh, the gents' toilets of the theatre where they were presenting it, and in through the door walked Johnny Mercer, who had won uh, the Oscar for original song three years earlier for Moon River. And uh, so they sort of shook hands and said, well, congratulations. And as Johnny Mercer was walking out, he said, oh, by the way, where'd you get your idea from for that song? And um, John Barry was about to say, oh, you know, I just came up with it. And then he remembered Moon River, Goldfinger. Very similar. <laughs> yeah, so it was Johnny Mercer. beautifully sung. I yeah, thank you. So that was Johnny Mercer's way of saying, you ripped me off, but I'm too much of a gentleman to call you on it. Anyway, we will be keeping up to date with Wales progress during the second half, keeping our fingers and toes and everything else in sight crossed for Wales. Let's hope they... Uh, Not to put too fine a point on it, but yes. Hope they, uh, let's hope they bring it, bring it through. It's going to be a very nervy second half, though. Had it not been for Wales playing today, I would have started with uh, The Hills Are Alive. No, well, I might have got a properly sung version of it, because that's uh, Sound of Music is coming to Berwick this week. Is it indeed? It is. It's going to be on at the Mortings tomorrow afternoon, half past two. Uh, it's five pounds um, to get into it. It says here, the mother superior of all musicals is coming to the big screen in Berwick. Bring the whole family to this timeless classic. And then it says afterwards that there is a short comfort break interval, because it does go on a bit, doesn't it? Is it a sing-along screening, or are they just showing the film? I assume, I assume they're just showing it, but I right. uh, didn't say it That won't stop them. No, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> it was another one of those that I saw the first time round, well before you were born. Yeah, and, well, one uh, of my... classic. Yeah, one of my favourite stories was, um, I think it was... It might even have been a famous critic who was trying to argue that The Sound of Music and The Great Escape were essentially the same film because they both involved good guys running from Nazis for the best part of three hours. Yeah, but you got the scenery and The Sound of Music. Yeah. Do you know the famous anecdote about the ending of The Sound of Music? When you see the family sort of having escaped from the Nazis and they run towards the mountains, they're going the wrong way because those mountains take them straight back to Germany. <laughs> <laughs> lovely, lovely. Of course, filmed in, uh, well, Salzburg and around, and I've been to all of the sites. And yeah. I've, I've run across with my arms in the air and... <laughs> In full petticoats. Yes, indeed. Salzburg's lovely. Yes. Shall we talk about some of the other local yes, films? Yes, I think we should. We've... That's the Annick Playhouse, and the box office number, of course, is 510785. Mixed bunch this week, uh, Monday afternoon, 4.30, Spy Kids 4. Which is awful. I mean, I, I don't think they'll be doing it in 4D, which is a good thing, but it's not much to write home about, even without the Romoscope. Right. Sarah's Key is Tuesday evening at 7.30. Which I like, actually. I, I caught this in the cinema not so long ago. I think there's a fantastic performance by the young girl in it called uh, Melusine Mayence, and Kristen Scott Thomas does very well. It struggles to balance the melodramatic story of Kristen Scott Thomas as journalist with the very bleak, harrowing aspect of the Holocaust, but it's admirable, and I think, you know, you'll get a certain amount of, well, not enjoyment out of it, but it is appreciative. Right. Then Friday evening, like it or love it, um, it's the in-betweeners. Well, we'll come to that when we do the top ten. Yeah. 
Cowboys and Aliens on Saturday night. As I said, no, it's all in the title. There is some pleasure in seeing Han Solo and James Bond going head to head, but there's not much else to write home about. Meanwhile, at the Mortings in Berwick, uh, the film that we feel has been unfairly panned by the critics, Horrid Henry, the movie, this afternoon at 2.30. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a bit ropey. It doesn't need to be in 3D, but no young kids will love it. And Richard E. Grant playing a sneering headmaster. Two opportunities to see the in-betweeners tonight at 8 o'clock and Wednesday at 8 o'clock. Mm -hmm. Sound music we talked about. Wednesday evening at half past eight, The Little Shop of Horrors. I think that's the 80s version with uh, Rick Moranis in, which is which is very good. I mean, I would, I have a soft spot for the 50s version by Roger Corman, which was famously made in three days. Um, yeah, it's quite good. I mean, certainly the, uh, the feed me, feed me sequence is still quite creepy. And then next Sunday, because remember last Sunday it was Mary Poppins. Tomorrow mm. it's The Sound of Music. Next Sunday, one o'clock, it's The Wizard of Oz! We're off to see the wizard. Yeah, I'm going to keep silent because my views on Wizard of Oz are rather extreme. I think it's one of the worst films ever made, but I'm willing to accept that other opinions are available. <laughs> Return to Oz, the sequel, is much better because it's shorter and creepier. Right. Shall we uh, talk about the top ten? Then? Yes, we should. The Debt at number ten. Which is, you no, know, a decent, if unremarkable, thriller from John Madden, who's the guy who made Shakespeare in Love. I think the period-setting stuff in the 60s, when they're actually capturing the German agent, is much more interesting than the stuff in the 90s. I like the fact that it's a political thriller which has got ideas, but it's not much more than okay. Uh, number nine, it's the in-betweeners. It's still there, and it just shows, you know, never trust... It goes trust on and on and on. Much like the film. Yeah, it just shows never trust a critic to tell you how long a film is going to be staying in the top ten for, because that's not our job. Right. One the critics do like is Drive at number eight. Which is really good. Nick Vindingreffen has made an upmarket modern-day B-movie with A-list visuals. No, it's an exploitation film with existentialism, and Ryan Gosling's very good. Number seven, we've got Crazy Stupid Love. Not as funny as it needs to be. You know, it desperately wants to be in a American version of Love Actually, but it doesn't have Richard Curtis's charm or his, you know, rambling way of writing. My main problem with it is there's not enough for Julianne Moore to do. And another one the critics like, Midnight in Paris at which, number six. Which I really like. I think it was a joint film of the week last week and it yeah, is it was, Woody Allen's yeah. best film in about five years. I mean, the premise harks back to Play It Against Sam, which he didn't actually direct, but you no, know, it's, you know, him being given romantic guidance by the ghost of Humphrey Bogart. And I like the fact that it handles the subject of nostalgia in an amusing and breezy way. It's a good date movie. And you can't say that about many Woody Allen films. Indeed. Number five, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. Which never really comes through with the goods. I mean, with the involvement of Guillermo del Toro, you expect the very best, and I do like Guy Pearce very much. The problem is that it isn't scary, or at least isn't scary enough. You know, it's, it isn't anything like as adept as Pan's Labyrinth as blending and juxtaposing the reality and the fairy tales. So if it had been made specifically as a 12-certificate film, it might have worked slightly better. At number four, slammed by the critics, is Abduction. I don't think it's quite as awful as they would have us believe. John Singleton, the director, has been off the boil for ages and ages, and it's deeply generic. But, you know, it's, it's Taylor Lautner running around for two hours with his shirt off. No. Guess who the target audience is? Not us. Number three, it's Tinker Sailor, Soldier Spy. Tinker Sailor, Soldier Spy. Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy. <laughs> yes, I was going to say. I've been talking for three and a half hours or something. Fair enough, yes. Yeah. So it's, it's really terrific. I think it's atmospheric. It's very substantial. Lots of people have been writing in to you know, various radio programmes saying, oh, it's pretentious or it's boring. To be honest, I don't care because all of them are wrong. It's a really great atmospheric downbeat thriller and it fulfils on the promise of Let the Right One In. One we featured last week at number two is The Lion King in 3D. Now, The Lion King in 2D is one of Disney's greatest achievements. I think it I was, said last week yes. it was one of my favourite Disney films. I think it might still be, actually. 
actually. Uh, the Lion King in 3D is just a cynical marketing exercise. You don't need to see it in 3D. It's only getting re-released because their new 3D films aren't taking much money. And the reason they're not taking much money is everyone is waking up and realising that 3D is a pointless waste of money and time. So don't go and see it. Which is a bit like, you could say, for the number one film, a bit pointless. Uh, Johnny English Reborn. Yeah, I don't think it's pointless. I think it's disappointing. Cause, no, it's it's about as good as the first film in terms of its jokes. Which doesn't inspire you. No, it doesn't. I mean, as you pointed out last week, all of the jokes about sort of taking the piss out of the James Bond series had been done in the Austin Powers series. And by the time you got to Goldmember, they, you thought, yes, you are starting to run out of steam, Mike, no more. Yeah. And no, Rowan Atkinson's a talented physical actor, and he has nothing to work with him. Right, so a bit of a mixed bunch in the top ten this week. Yeah. Recommendations? Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, if you haven't already, uh, Midnight in Paris, and Drive. We'll have some music, and then it's cult film for Horror Month. Oh, one other thing to oh, tell yes. us about. Yes, the, uh, if you want your more than your fair share of cult classics this week, if no, our review of The Fog isn't going to be enough, the Tyneside Cinema are holding a cult classic all-nighter, starting at ten this evening and going through till ten tomorrow morning. Be very scared. Yes. So, um, I'll rattle through the list of those are showing. You won't be able to catch all of them because they're spread over three screens, but in order from start to finish, An American Werewolf in London, oh, which we talked yes. about. Uh, the Room, which is an American sort of, no, so bad it's good film, with Nell and I, John Woo's Hard Boiled, The Big Lebowski, Labyrinth with David Bowie, and a very young Jennifer Connolly, Michael Lehman's Heathers, which is, no, fantastic breakout performance by Nona Ryder, Eraserhead, American Psycho, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, with Petty Davis being very scary, Suspiria, the Jake Daniel Argento film, Young Frankenstein, Flash Gordon, The Breakfast Club, and finishing off with This Is Spinal Tap. Now, how is that for a 12 hours worth of film programming? Right, and you're there tonight. I'm not there all night. I'll be going to see Spinal Tap for definite, and if I'm up early enough, I'll probably see Suspiria. And on a slightly different vein, and if you haven't got tickets for it, it's too late. It's last night at the Proms at Newcastle City Hall tonight. Right. It's sold out many times over. Yeah, tickets for the Times, I think, are 75 pence per film, and you can get them on the door That's still. So really go good it. value. It's isn't fantastic. It? Yeah. Uh, lots of good news, I'm afraid, in the rugby. The latest score is Wales 3, France 9. Here's Adele. This is the fresh sound for the district. Live from Annick. This is Lionheart Radio. Adele will make you feel my love. And congratulations to Mick and Amanda. 28th anniversary yesterday. Well done indeed. Congratulations. And thanks to Mick for texting in. We have got a track coming up for you. Um, not the one you asked for, but hopefully you'll like it. Uh, I'm afraid it's not on our computer, oddly enough. Yeah, shameful. Yes. Ali Lee will no doubt play it for you on Wednesday night, though, when he's here. Yeah, we shall, we shall drop him an email. Yes. Right, shall we talk about the cult classic then? Yes, we should. Um, it's got Jamie Lee Curtis in it. It, it can't is. be bad. No, it isn't. So, 1980 film called The Fog, uh, directed by John Carpenter, whom we last talked about when we reviewed The Thing, which must be back in June, so nearly yeah, five was, months yes. ago. We've actually got the remake or prequel of The Thing coming out in a couple of weeks, so watch this space. This was Carpenter's attempt to cement himself as a director to watch after the huge and unexpected success of Halloween, because if you mm. remember when we talked about Halloween, it was made for $325,000 yeah. and in some cases stayed in cinemas right up until the other side of I Christmas. Remember it, yes. So yes, yeah. I mean, it, no, no one could have predicted that. Now, in between making Halloween and The Fog, Carpenter sought to cement his craft by making a couple of TV movies and he made Someone's Watching Me, which is you know, nothing remarkable if you've seen sort of Stranger yeah. in a House or um, that Audrey Hepburn film Wait Until Dark with Alan Arkin in it. Same sort of premise and it's uh, it only got released on DVD about four years ago. But after that, more significantly, he made the TV movie of Elvis, which he was given because basically no one else wanted to do the TV movie about the king of rock and roll. And that started his relationship with Kurt Russell, who would later be in Escape from New York yeah. Yeah. and its sequel Escape from L.A., which is 
rubbish. But hey, of course, he was also famously in The Thing and then Big Trouble in Little China. And the story, the famous story about the Elvis TV movie is that it was put up and on, no, the, I think whichever channel it was, maybe NBC in America, against telecast reruns of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Gone with the Wind, and it beat both of them in the ratings. Which, you know, considering Gone with the Wind had been out for 40 years, maybe it wasn't that remarkable hearing about it now. But at the time, it's like, whoa, who's this guy kind of coming along and stealing the attention from yeah. these Oscar-winning films? And in the same way as Steven Spielberg's Duel only got a theatrical release in Europe but was on television in America, the success of the Elvis TV movie on the networks meant that Europe got to see it in, in cinemas and then, again, it came out on DVD only quite recently. Yeah. So it had a budget of $1 million, which you know, seems very little, but it was about three times as much as Halloween cost, you know, you know, give or take sort of distribution and marketing. And it did take a lot of money on release, something like 21 million in North America alone. That's impressive. That is impressive, but the reason it's a cult classic, I think, because you know, normally we have a rule that if a film takes money first time around, it can't really be a cult classic. We've sort of bent the rules in yeah. the past by saying American Werewolf took money, but very slowly, or Mad Max 3 took money, but only in certain territories yeah. and so forth. The reason it's a cult classic for me is that Carpenter had a very sort of unhappy relationship with it. I mean, for reasons that will become clear involving sort of reshoots and his his attitude towards the finished product, which means that you know, even the director has a slightly shifty relationship to the film, and that's why I think it has sort of cult status, quite apart from the fact that it has become, it was at one point very difficult to track down. And his, um, his mixed feelings about it were one of the reasons that when they approached him in 2005 saying, could we remake it? He said, yes, just put my name on it. And the remake was utter rubbish. So the story is, it's set in the fictional Antonio Bay in California in the present day, so 1980. And you have a town which is about to celebrate its centennial year. At the beginning of the film, we have a ghostly prologue on the beach delivered by a famous character actor called John Houseman, who tells a group of small boys around a campfire about the fate of the Elizabeth Dane, which was a clipper ship from the 19th century, which was lured onto the rock of Antonio Bay by six greedy men who wanted the treasure of the ship and to prevent the ship's owner, a guy called Blake, from using the money on the ship to establish a leper colony. And then the city of Ant the town of Antonio Bay was built on the site where the leper colony would yeah. have been. After the opening credits, where we have sort of lights flickering on and off and car horns all going off at once and TVs turning themselves on, a bit like Poltergeist, <laughs> although Poltergeist actually came mm. two years later. We focus on the preparations for the centennial, in particular on the local radio station run by uh, DJ Stevie Wayne, who is played by Carpenter's then-wife, Edrin Barbeau, who also turns up in Escape from New York. And soon, a ghostly fog starts creeping over the landscape, bringing with it vengeful ghostly pirates who want to right this ancient wrong. We should have some creepy music at this point. Yes, we? We, can we dig out Monster Mash or something <laughs> like that? No, a bit creepier than that. Okay, quite possibly. So... Put simply, The Fog is the kind of film that, Carpet, that Halloween would have been if Carpenter was not quite so adept at marrying storytelling to special effects. There are a number of very technically impressive set pieces which foreshadow more expensive mainstream films, and all the Carpenter's um, trademarks are there, and a very good steady cam, self-composed soundtrack, quite strong female characters. But although the story is as brutally simple as its predecessor, it ultimately fails to make the most of it. So you end up with a film which is perfectly decent, but also a little bit ordinary. You know, certainly compared to Halloween, that's the one you choose to watch. Like his subsequent film, uh, Prince of Darkness, which we mentioned in passing when we talked about The Thing, because that's mm. the second part of his Apocalypse trilogy, which yeah. then concludes within the Mouth of Madness. And both of those films are tributes to one of 
uh, John Carpenter's big influences, which is H.P. Lovecraft. There was uh, going to be an adaptation of At the Mountains of Madness, which is many considered to be Lovecraft's finest and most famous work, and that was going to be held by Guillermo del Toro, but then that fell by the wayside quite recently. So in the same way as those films look back to H.P. Lovecraft, who, who created this kind of way of horror writing in which it was supernatural horror but it had nothing to do with god it was sort of strange yeah. monsters lurking beyond the antarctic and those strange this cthulhu force in the same way as the fog is is on one level a tribute to edgar Allan poe it starts off with a quote from edgar Allan poe and then the opening section where john houseman is telling this ghostly story about sort of two minutes past midnight <laughs> it is a bit like um do you remember Vincent Price, in, when, and he was sort of, you know, in the last few years of his life, he used to go on tour and he was on American television reciting Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven and doing a very good job of it. Yes, but it's that sort yeah. of thing of bringing an audience into a ghostly story and like all Edgar Allan Poe stuff, there is a real sort of <gasps> moment at the end when there's a, nevermore. <laughs> but that's no, that's what Edgar Allan Poe said, fantastic. And that opening sequence is very well played, not only because it creates a spooky mood, but also because the way it orchestrates horror, the fact that you've got, you know, an old man who looks a bit like a sailor uh, chatting to, you know, sort of young boys around the campfire leads you to think that it's going to be, oh, we're not scared, we don't yeah. believe in ghosts and so forth. But actually, Houseman's delivery in that is so precise and so dolorous and so <laughs> uneasy in itself yeah. that you start to think, actually, maybe there is some truth in this and I'm starting to getting a little bit shivery. <laughs> The first problem with the fog, however, is that a lot of the suspense that it generates in the first five minutes either evaporates or it sort of disperses quite quickly. And the rest of the first half, up until the moment where the bit of driftwood sets on fire, which I'll talk about in a bit, is a little bit, and I emphasise little bit because it's not an awful film by any means, it's a little bit dull insofar as there's not much compared to the first five minutes that is engaging or threatening. And now Carpenter sets up a host of different characters who begin interacting in different ways, but none of these encounters in and of themselves are enough to kind of to tie in to the main thrust of the first five minutes. And our emotional response varies from annoyance with Janet Lee's character, who's sort of the, the assistant to the yeah. mayor, kind of going around bossing Nancy Loomis, saying, you know, I want the bunting here, I want the cars here, I want the lights on to come at a certain time. Two, the kind of disbelief at uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, who is picked up by uh, Tom Atkins when she's hitchhiking, and the next thing you know, they're sleeping together so you think okay that was quick how did that happen um my back was to be turned so the, like a lot of horror films those sorts of character shortcomings in terms of you know suspension yeah. of disbelief they do limit how scary the film can be i mean there is some appeal in seeing you know a, a kind of radical punky director like john carpenter having a bash at what is essentially a very old-fashioned ghost story sort of taking something that he admires and which you know has influenced horror cinema i know we were talking about the others last week i think you no know, looking back to the turn of the screw and all those yeah. kind of stories about grief and loss and these world and next world colliding and for the first half of it it's a little bit hokey because you know there are sequences where like uh, father malone played by hal holbrook who was in all the president's men and uh, capricorn one which we'll talk about in a few weeks there's a moment when he discovers blake's diary hidden in the wall of his house and there's sort of a reading on it and it's a bit like those sequences in Blythe spirit when they're trying to sort of summon the ghost and the ghost yeah. turns out to be more benevolent than the people are summoning and that's the joke of noel coward's play and in the midst, so you have sort of on the one hand the quite hokey stuff, and on the other hand, Carpenter trying to do the modern stuff, but all it amounts to in the end is quite a few sort of loud bangs on the <laughs> ship, so it's like, uh, you know, a mop falls over, and then, oh, that's the scare, and then a hand comes out. So, you know, yeah. fairly standard shocking stuff, but nothing massively memorable. And even the opening, where you do have sort of lights turning themselves on and off and TVs coming alive and well, not coming alive but sort of you know turning themselves yeah. on and so forth stuff that was handled much better by Toby Hooper in Poltergeist two years later it's an interesting little set piece but the general momentum that it generates isn't enough 
So what we are left to admire in the opening section of the fog are the special effects, which as it turns out are quite impressive. I mean, we're talking, like I say, a million dollars, so next to no money at all, even in 1980. And there simply wasn't the resource. Now, if you're going to make a film about fog, the instinctive thing that you think of is, okay, uh, we need loads and loads of fog machines, we've got to fill an entire street with fog, how do we do it? But when you've yeah. only got a million dollars, which is barely enough to hire a street for a month, let alone yeah. to fill it with stuff, then... Now, how do you do it? And um, to get around this, what Carpenter did was that all the wide shots of Antonio Bay with the fog coming in off the sea and it moving down the street were done with um, sort of scale models shrouded in black cloth. And it's, no, it sounds like a very sort of ropey Star Trek-y solution, but it, but it works really something well. Something they're done in Thunderbirds. It's quite possible, yeah. <laughs> it does look a little bit slicker than Thunderbirds, but, <laughs> no. but it is, no, it's an interesting yeah. way of doing it. And it, it, you don't sit there thinking that's a model shot with a fog machine just off the yeah. screen. You do think, actually, I do believe that's, that's there. I mean, in contrast to the blatant CGI in the remake, in which you do get sort of CG faces coming out of the fog in shapes, which is just a bit ridiculous, yeah. you have uh, you no know, actual foggy machines. Carpenter used a machine called a mole fogger, which is a fog machine invented by a guy called Mr. Mole. So how prosaic. <laughs> in which you, you create the clouds, and then you sort of had three or four little handheld fans to sort of push them a little bit down the street. No, quite basic but you could sort of get the idea of a yeah. sort of drift and then you'd sort of cut and then you do yeah. a little bit more and then cut a bit more and of course the way that it's shot no is quite good no it's uh, shot by dean cundy who'd worked with carpenter who's worked with carpenter throughout his career would later end up shooting things like apollo 13 so no yeah. knows his stuff yeah indeed, and he yes. does he does manage to get the most out of what is essentially an inanimate object i mean you take stuff which is essentially water vapor floating around and by lighting it in a certain way it doesn't become entirely terrifying, but it, it has a sort of creepy air, and the way that he does that is by lighting it in different ways depending on what he's doing. So when it's coming in off the sea, it's got a sort of iridescent blue shimmer, as if it's sort of like, um, like sort of primordial ooze seeping in. But when it goes into the house, it's that sort of pulpy red and green that you get in the Hammer films. Yeah. So it's, you know, I mean, the, the colour changes aren't sort of reflected in the changes of the ghost character, but it's an interesting way of saying, look, we've got this fog here, how yeah. can we make it look slightly creepy without necessarily yeah. giving it a personality? So, the, no, the special effects are quite well, and that is a good example of the inventiveness of low-budget filmmaking, that you don't need $200 million to make fog creepy, yeah. let alone make it feel real. Fittingly enough, it is one particular special effect which causes the fog to, to move from being a fairly ordinary but slightly unmemorable film into, actually, this is quite creepy and I'm uh, interested in where this is going. Um, it comes when Adrian Barbeau, playing uh, Stevie Wayne, she's in the radio station testing out some, some pre-recorded demo tapes, you know, back in the days of vinyl and reel-to-reel uh, -reel tape recorders and cartridges. I remember them Ex well. Exactly. Uh. So she's testing all these sort of demo tapes with the jingles that she's made and uh, she had, next to her desk there is a piece of driftwood with the word Dane on it, so it and which her son has found on the beach, so it's implied to be a bit of the Elizabeth Dane that had sort of yeah. washed up and hasn't been seen for a hundred years. And while her back is turned, the wood starts to drip with seawater, uh -huh. just on of its own accord. And she she doesn't notice anything until the water starts running into the tape recorder and the sound gets garbled in the way that no sort of old tape recorders would if you could have yeah. put them anywhere near water or heat or so yeah. forth. And Barbeau turns around to find that the writing on the plank has changed from Dane to Six Must Die, and then the Ooh. wet plank bursts into flames. And you think... That is something that was wet and it's just caught fire. What the hell is going on? Mm. So, quite apart from its technical proficiency, you know, how do you set something wet on yeah. fire and without making it look like you just put a firework underneath yeah. it? That sequence is the first time in the film where we have a real sense of both tension and a provable physical threat. Because you have the supernatural element of, you know, like I say, how can something wet catch on fire and how did the writing change and how did the driftwood get there in the first place? 
But there's also the physical threat of it's actually on fire, it's actually dripping, it's not just a figment of my imagination, it's not like in the others where, you know, clearly one of them is ghost and one of them isn't, yeah. and you have to sort of come down one way or the other. And because that action happens so close to us, because we see the, the piece of driftwood in close-up, it's not sort of in the back on the other side yeah. of the room where it could just be done with a guy with a match sitting next yeah. to the piece yeah. of wood, you actually, you, you get a sense of... <sighs> You know, a connection to this character, you're thinking, because I'm in the room with Adrian Barbo, I'm right thrust into her predicament, and what's going to happen to her now? There is a slight problem again, because as the ghosts get more screen time, we do start to ask questions about, well, okay, if they're physical, how is it that they can sort of work yeah. on a physical level? I mean, it's very, very difficult to put, you know, a supernatural force like ghosts with a natural you know, force like fog and sort of blend them together, because you have to make very clear where the boundaries lies, you know, can ghosts walk through walls, you know, can they move outside of the fog, all those yeah. decisions have to be rectified, and it doesn't, it doesn't really become consistent. Now, I don't know whether that was a result of the original script or because of the production problems, because what happened was, famously, um, they shot the film as it had been written, because uh, I think Carpenter co-scripted it with uh, his, um, his producer, and they took a look at it in the rushes in late 1979 and realised that it wasn't scary at all. So Carpenter went back and shot a third of it again to put in more sort of grubby stuff with the ghosts yeah. sort of scraping their hooked hands along the wall and so forth. And they sort of intercut them in, so about a third of the film is that reshot footage. And, you know, when you reshoot a film, even if you're someone like Carpenter who is quite adept at sort of syncing it up, you'll also... The, the story will feel a bit like yeah. a patchwork and it yeah. does you know sort of thinking okay spooky bit spooky bit gory bit spooky bit gory bit spooky bit gory bit and it doesn't quite yeah. so because it never sets out the parameters in which the fog or the ghosts operate every time we try and impose our logic on it we sort of come up short so we think okay the fog has got no power on its own that's fine so how come it's gone into the boat's generator and taken it out Right, so that theory's out the window. Okay, so the ghosts can't have influence outside the fog, so how is the driftwood getting soaked and then bursting into flames? Okay. Um, the ghosts are physical, because they have to knock on doors with their hooked hands, which is slightly creepy without letting them in, except at the end, where they suddenly appear in the church as if they've walked through walls. So all that sort of thing, I mean, and, and the norm yeah. under normal circumstances, you would have every right to say, I'm sorry, this just isn't working. I think in the case of the fog, the best way to enjoy it is to focus on it as a film of atmosphere rather than of substance, which is you know, a disappointing thing to say about a Carpenter film, because he has, you know, in his prime, he was always about substance rather than yeah. just evoking yeah. an atmosphere. I mean, certainly with The Thing, that's the case, yeah, where you have yeah. got a terrifying atmosphere, but it's also about politics, it's about yeah. racism, it's about paranoia. So when you sit through The Fog as just a sort of atmospheric, slightly creaky but nice old-fashioned ghost story, it has just about enough in the way of atmosphere to pull it through 90 minutes. I mean, Carpenter's dynamic score, which is, of course, all composed on synthesizers, you know, like the Halloween stuff yeah. where it was in 5-4 time, I won't sing it again. It's, no, it's well matched to the scenes of The Fog just creeping on off the coast, and several of the set pieces do work well. I mean, there is, there is a sequence where... Jamie Lee Curtis has been freaked out on a ship with one of the pirates coming on board and sort of trying to get at her. And they manage to take the pirate's body, because it's collapsed, back to a doctor on land, and he starts examining it, saying, you know, I think it's been dead for a hundred years, so how is it walking around? And then as she's in the foreground, it starts sitting up behind her and slowly oh. walking towards her. And it's... Because uh, yeah. that's creepy in itself. Yes. Yeah. I was actually watching um, The Ninth Gate last night, Roman Polanski's you know, supernatural thriller with Johnny Depp, and there is an exact similar shot of the camera moving very slowly behind Johnny Depp's head and he gets about so far and you think okay he's going to get knocked out and suffice to say he does because Polanski's film is a bit rubbish one of his few bad films um, so there's that sort of creepy scene there is also quite a good set piece in the church where um, 
uh, Father Malone, played by Hol Holbrook, confronts the six ghosts who have sort of come on land to take revenge by giving them the cross of the church, which is made out of Blake's gold, and it starts sort of shimmering and he starts shaking. So that's a good visual set piece. Yeah. And the performances are quite decent. I mean, Adrian Barbeau is convincing as a local DJ. She's got that sort of husky voice, which a lot of sort of late night 70s did, a bit like Whispering Bob, yes, but you know, a little more feminine. Yes. And now she does get a few duff lines, you know, she spends a lot of her time kind of screaming, stay away from the fog, stay away from the fog, in a sort of way that does get repetitive. But she does handle herself pretty well. Hull Holbrook, you know, one of the most brooding actors of the 70s, you know, deep throat in all the president's mm. men. James Kellaway in Capricorn One. Now, he, he does the thing that Peter Ustinov does in Logan's Run, which is you give him very little to work with, and he somehow manages to dominate the film. Yeah. And yeah. he is incredibly creepy. And there are also, you know, two graduates of Halloween, because you have Nancy Loomis, uh, no relation to Dr. Sam Loomis, because that's the character in the film. She plays Janet Lee's personal assistant, who doesn't really have the time yeah. of day for her. And Jamie Lee Curtis. And this is, I think, one of only two films in which mother and daughter appear on screen together because of course Janet Lee Curtis is the offspring of Janet Lee and Tony Curtis yeah and no they, they do have chemistry together I mean they they tended to avoid appearing together because um, Janet Lee wanted her daughter to carve out her own career but suffice to say it works and yeah. Janet Lee it's, I think it's actually Janet Lee's last film appearance so she does carry herself well quite well so to sum it up, compared to Halloween, it is a bit of a disappointment. No, it's narratively inept and inconsistent, and the story is weaker, but the special effects are interesting and no, admirable for what they had with the money. And with Carpenter's score and the performances, it's a decent, if slightly unremarkable, 90-minute ghost story. No, it's best to watch it as escapism, because that's the only way it makes sense. But for late-night Halloween viewing, it's not bad at all. Great. Good stuff. Hmm. Like the, the uh, rugby... Uh Wales 8, France 9, 6 minutes to go. Lionheart Radio. As a fan, this flight tonight, that was played specially for Mick and Amanda, who celebrated their 28th wedding anniversary yesterday. You wanted my white bicycle. Unfortunately, it's not on our system, would you believe? It's absolutely disgraceful. Yes. Are we getting, are we getting distracted by the World Cup or what? Uh, latest score, Wales 8, France 9. Uh, a try for Wales. Uh, missed the conversion. They've missed a penalty, unfortunately. Five minutes to go. Right, Get your prayer mats out. Well, you keep an eye on a score and yes. know it shouted us when it's yes. half time. Okay, what are we, um, what are we doing next week? Well, next, because we were originally going to do Horror Month all the way through to the 29th, but unfortunately Paul Young is no longer available to cover, so we're going to wind Horror up next week with Carrie, uh, Stephen King adaptation by Brian De Palma, and then we'll take two weeks off. So after next yeah. week, we won't be back till the 12th. Great. Two weeks' time, of course, is the Annie Halloween Festival. Yes. The first of 13 as they're advertising it. Yes. And there are two films at the Playhouse on uh, Saturday the 29th of October, Fright Night. Which, you know, it's... The, the original Fright Night wasn't brilliant. This is every bit as creaky, but David Tennant is quite good in it. And then on Halloween itself, the Monday the 31st, is Edward. Which I absolutely love. Tim Burton's very best film. It's a tribute to, you know, the man who was called the worst filmmaker and made Edward D. Wood Jr., who made Glenn or Glenda and Plan 9 from Outer Space, amongst other things. Features Johnny Depp's finest performance, um, you know, showing uh, how, you know, he, this character, Edward, sort of believed that all along he was making great work, and as a result, the films that were really terrible were really, really great. Features a fantastic confrontation between Johnny Depp playing Edward and Vincent D'Onofrio playing Orson Welles in a bar where they have what? a sort of confrontation yeah. about creativity. And Martin Landau is terrific as Bella Lugosi. So, so if, you, going to see. if you haven't seen it, it's Tim Burton's best film, and Johnny Depp is terrific in it. And that's at 9 
nine o'clock Monday, the 31st of October. Yes. Also features the best performance by Sarah Jessica Parker, who was once a great actress before she started right. doing Sex in the City. Well, after that big plug, it's Anik 510785 if you want to get your tickets. Shall we have a look what's in the new releases? I think we should. Um, no particular order. Let's start, well, the one with the weirdest title. P.O.M. Wonderful Presents The Greatest Movie Ever Sold. Okay, um... It's a long title. Yes, The Greatest Movie Ever Sold is the short title, but for reasons that will become clear, we have to mention Pom Wonderful at the start. New film by Morgan Spurlock, who is a documentarian who made Supersize Me, which was great, and Where in the World is Osama Bin Laden, which was rather wide of the mark. Have you seen Supersize Me? Uh, the one in which he has I to think eat. I may have done. One in yes. which he eats nothing but McDonald's for thirty days. Yes, and, uh, yeah. I saw Travis for it. Yes, yeah. no. It's you know queasably enjoyable, but very good fun. So it's a documentary about product placement in the film industry, uh, sort of following how agencies and companies pay millions of dollars to get their branding on screen. A famous recent examples with you know Casino Royale Bond going. Is that a Rolex? No, it's an Omega. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, yeah. there's a story that the new Bond film being made by Sam Mendes, a third of its budget is coming from just companies giving money. Their products in. Yeah. I mean, it's no, it's it's a safeguard for studios. The interesting gimmick about it, sort of as a postmodern gag, is it's a film about product placement, which is funded entirely by product placement. <laughs> yeah. So the reason it's called Pom Wonderful presents the greatest movie ever yeah. sold is that Pom Wonderful is a company that makes pomegranate juice in America. So Morgan Spurlock effectively rang up all these companies saying, you know, give us the money, we're going to make a film about product placement in the industry, and you no, know, we'll put your name up if you don't mind us <laughs> taking the piss out of you a little bit. So no, it's an ingenious little postmodern self-reflexive gag, and it is Morgan Spurlock back on form doing what yeah. he does best which is breezy interest filmmaking interest filmmaking in the sense that he takes a subject matter which we all know is out there because we all know about the health effects yeah. of McDonald's we all know about Osama Bin Laden we all know about product placement because we live with it from day to day and sort of approaching it in a way which actually makes us think about it in a way which we hadn't before and that sounds interesting he does make an interesting case but the same his argument is that product placement in and of itself is not a problem because advertising is something that we have to live yeah. with if we want something for nothing the problem is when we don't realise we're being sold in, his argument that you know, when it's subverted, or not subverted, when it's sort of hidden, it damages the artistic integrity of films. And one of the people he interviews says that whenever there's a product placement in a film, I want there to be a big red klaxon going on saying, you are watching a product placement. Yeah. So it isn't groundbreaking or radical, but if it's anything like Super Size Me, it will change your opinion of the industry, or at the very least, it'll make you laugh a little along the way. I don't know whether the Times said are showing it this week, but if you, even if you have to travel, check it out, because it looks like a return it to form. It does sound, it sounds very interesting I'll indeed. see if I can check it out yeah. and report back. Real Steel is the next one. Okay, a new film by Sean Levy, who is a sort of nuts and bolts hack director, made a Date Night, most recently previously made sort of Nightmare at the, Night at the Museum 1 and I think 2 as well. Based loosely on the 1956 short story by Richard Matheson, who wrote many of the best-loved episodes of The Twilight Zone, most famously um, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, where William Shatner thinks that there's a gremlin on the wing of the plane yeah. and it starts, you know, everyone else thinks he's mad and and there's the twist at the end. Yeah. So the story follows Charlie Kenton, played by Hugh Jackman, who was once an up-and-coming boxer who missed his chance to be a champion because as he was reaching his prime, human boxing was being phased out in favour of robotic boxing, sort of two <laughs> robots in the arena hitting each other, like sort of you know, the rock and sock and things which you had when you were a kid. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So now he's working as a promoter, and he teams up with his estranged son to build a robot that can take on the best and uh, they kind of go through and have a lot of fights and eventually, you know, he gets into the fight with the champion and you know pretty much what's going to happen. Yeah. For starters, no, to, if Michael Bay is listening, this is how you make a film about robots hitting each other. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is, because you've got, you've got very prominent, very good special effects, but... 
anchored by human character drama, as opposed to what Michael Bay does, which is humans turning up for random porn-inflected shots in between <laughs> loads of bits of metal which isn't there hitting each other. I mean, I'm, that's not hyperbole, that's what it is. You, so, yes, it's silly, yes, it's cheesy, yes, it's schmaltzy, yes, you can see all the plot points coming a mile off, because, frankly, this story has been done a hundred times. But young boys and their dads will lap it up. Hugh Jackman does a pretty good job. You know, he's a family entertainer. And as family fun, it's pretty decent. Right. The next one. Mixed feelings about this. The Three Musketeers in 3D. New take on the classic swashbuckling tale by Alexandre Dumas. I mean, people of your generation will remember the Richard Lester adaptations from... Certainly the do, yes. Oliver Reed. Was, yes. I and remember. Michael York. Yes. Uh, I can't remember. Was Oliver Reed Porthos in the 70s versions? Uh, yeah, I think yeah, he was. Certainly yes. big enough, yeah. Yes, and people of my People of my generation are probably more familiar with the story through things like uh, The Man in the Iron Mask, which isn't strictly based on The Three Musketeers, and there's that fantastic yeah. sequence in The Man in the Iron Mask with Gerard Depardieu is playing Porthos, and he, you know, he's frolicking around in the hay with a woman and says, no, I'm, I'm just no good, I'm going to hang myself. And he gets up, at which point the hay rolls back and there's three other women underneath. <laughs> <laughs> no, only Gerard Depardieu could get away with that. So this is directed by uh, Paul W.S. Anderson, who made uh, Resident Evil, and uh, before that he made Event Horizon which is a very underrated sci-fi horror film we may talk about that in a few weeks because again it didn't get much attention the first time round story is now as with the Dumas novel young upstart called D'Artagnan who is who is played in this version by Logan Lerman uh, he comes to Paris to become a musketeer he wants to join the three of Athos Porthos and Aramis and so that they all end up fighting each other yeah. and eventually he gets in a sort of um, accompanied by them. While this is going on, there are various shenanigans going on at the French court involving the wicked Count Richelieu, who's played by Christophe Waltz, uh, the suave Lord Buckingham, played by Orlando Bloom, and the treacherous Milady de Winter, played by Emilia Jovovich, who's actually married to the director, so that's how she got the part. Right. Um, there is potential for good swashbuckling fun, and I do like the Richard Lester versions very much. I mean, oh, I do. Yeah, I mean, as with, right. as, yeah, I mean, as with so many swashbuckling films, the point of those films is not off, the plot is often secondary to seeing the spectacle. And with the case of Richard Lester, you know it's actual swordplay, it's actual sort of choreograph. Yeah. It's a bit like, you know, the Errol Flynn Robin Hood yes. films in which, you know, it doesn't matter who's fighting whom, but no, it's yeah. good, it's good action but stuff. great uncontrived comedy in those, the, those versions. Yeah, it's absolutely. No, no, it's very... Richard Lester doing what he does best, which is sort of light-hearted, slightly yeah. camp, slightly silly, but it works. You don't get that physicality in the new version. What you do get is a lot of swords being pointed at the screen, or muskets being fired at the camera, because it's in 3D. Yeah. The steampunk look that they've done with sort of floating ships, which looks a bit like Pirates of the Caribbean, so I start getting annoyed. It makes it look even more pantomime than the 70s version, but without yeah. the sort of the knowing humour of saying, no, we're not taking this too seriously. So, it's in 3D, but to make the obvious joke, it's disappointingly flat. A bit posy. Yes, a like. little bit posy. And no, Orlando Bloom doing his thing that he does in Pirates of the Caribbean and coming up and saying, Yes, I'm so where's my cappuccino? Yeah, right. Footloose is next. <laughs> yes, a remake of the nineteen eighty four dance movie most famous for launching the career of Kevin Bacon, who you know we talked we mentioned Apollo thirteen yeah. earlier, of course, and that for me Apollo thirteen is his best work. I mean I like Kevin Bacon a lot. Yeah. Um there's an interesting story about the original Footloose, which is that it was originally going to be directed by Michael Cimino, who's the guy who made the Deer Hunter in Heaven's Gate. No, Heaven's Gate, which famously destroyed United Artists because it cost $42 million <laughs> and took five and sort of oh, ran yeah. into the ground. And it, he was offered Footloose as sort of one last chance to redeem himself, to say, actually, I am a talented filmmaker, I just screwed up big time. But surprise, surprise, he got fired for working too slowly and being uncooperative. <laughs> so no change there. 
So the original originally was helmed by Herbert Ross, who made the American version of Pennies from Heaven, the, based on the Dennis Potter story, which made a hero out of Bob Hoskins when it was made in yeah. England. This is helmed by Craig Brewer, who made Hustle and Flow and Black Stank Moan and has worked extensively on MTV. So the story, for those who don't know, it follows a teenager played in this version by Kenny Warmold, who moves to a small town where the local preacher has banned dancing and rock music and all the kid wants to do is dance. In the original, the preacher was played by John Lithgow, who has a sort of lip-curling quality to him. Of course, he plays Lord Farquaad in the original Shrek yeah. film and does a fantastic job of it. In this version, it's played by Dennis Quaid. His wife is played by Andy, because you're worth it, McDowell, who many people will know from Four Weddings and a Funeral. And eventually, the kid rebels and convinces the local school to put on a dance and he falls in love with the preacher's daughter, a bit like that Dusty Springfield song. The original was perfectly passable, but nothing special, and this is pretty much more of the same. It was originally going to be directed by Kenny Ortega, who was behind the High School Musical series and also did the choreography of Michael Jackson's This Is It, the tour which then became the concert film. He unfortunately dropped out, so we get something slightly less zippy and boomy than that. It's got a very MTV pop sensibility, so depending on your age or your view towards MTV, you'll either go all sort of doe-eyed and start cheering, or you'll start vomiting in a bucket. <laughs> And it does serve its target audience pretty well. I mean, we're not the target audience. I dare say that you're not. No, we're uh, not. So, no, but people under the age of 12, and I think, you know, girls and boys equally will enjoy it. It's nothing remarkable. It's totally innocuous, but it's perfectly fine and decent. Great. Dolphin Tail. Uh, yes. New film by Charles Martin Smith, who's most famous for directing Air Bud, which is that sort of 90s comedy about a, a dog who joins a basketball team and they manage to win the championships. Mm. Not worth dwelling on, based on a true story in that Hollywood way. And uh, it revolves around the story of a young boy and his family who find a bottlenose dolphin trapped in some crab fishing nets by evil fishermen. And uh, in attempting to free it, the dolphin actually loses its tail. And so they, they take it in, and with the help of a local aquarium, they fit it with a prosthetic tail to get it back to health. Now, it is as though with this film we have gone back to the early 90s, a sort of free willy one, two, and three, <laughs> and uh, Flipper, which is you know, yeah. one of Elijah Wood's first films. And also there was that, that rip-off of a flipper called Zeus and Roxanne about a relationship between a, a dog and a dolphin with the immortal line, if a dog and a dolphin can get along, why can't we? <laughs> Just duh, stop it, please. So we've seen the story a million times before. You know exactly where it's going. You knew it's going to be life-affirming schmaltz. I mean, Morgan Freeman playing the benevolent scientist who builds the prosthetics doing the Morgan Freeman yeah. performance. My advice is that if you can't wait for Free Willy to be shown on TV again, then that's your only excuse for seeing it. Right. Finally, Sleeping Beauty. Yes, which has nothing to do with the Disney film. Um, it's uh, the debut film by uh, Julia Lee, no relation to Mike Lee, who uh, in this film premiered at Cannes. And the story follows uh, a student played by Emily Browning, who was last seen in Zack Snyder's Sucker Punch. And she is a student who answers an ad in a newspaper to become a lingerie waitress, which is a posh way of saying sort of, you know, silver-serving prostitute. Yeah. And there are sort of... And it emerges that she is being groomed by her employers to become what's known as a sleeping beauty, which, you know, stay with me, I'll be as delicate as I can. It's a strange fetish whereby she meets the clients, they sedate her, and she doesn't know what happens between when she goes under and when she wakes up, and the implication is that it's not very nice. Mm. Uh, I've been in two minds about this ever since I read about it. On the one hand, it, it comes at you with a post of uh, Emily Browning in that sort of um, pre-Raphaelite pose of sort of naked, but in a sheet with her back to yeah. you, and it says presented by Jane Campion. Jane Campion, of course, the person who made the piano, which loads of people love, but I think is just crushingly boring. Have you, have you seen the piano? Yes. Holly Hunter and... Yeah. Uh, no. What did you think of it? I actually quite liked it. Well, it's very, very long and very, very yes. slow. I know, it's, yes, it was slow, but... Yes. Beautifully okay. shot and... Yes. 
Yes. Okay, so we, we differ on that. I mean, there was a wonderful quote by Mark Kermode who was asked to describe what Jane Campion's sensibility is, and he said that the only thing she can do is female self-annihilation in bonnets. That's all she does. <laughs> so it's, no, that sort of Jane Campion thing which I have a problem with, and also it's a very uncomfortable subject matter because it's the yeah, question of, sure, yes. is it rape? Is she consenting to what yeah. she's doing? What right do the people she's being employed by have to do this? What's happening to her? And the, because the idea is that she goes under and then she has to yeah. find out what happened to her in the meantime. On the other hand, it does seem to be helmed by people who understand the subject matter, and Emily Browning is, well, certainly compared to Sucker Punch, she does do a very decent job. I think your attitude will depend on your attitude towards a couple of films. I mean, if you liked Savage Grace, which I do, then you'll be able to put up with the sort of impenetrable glacial quality of it and the sort of the, the, the idea that what you're seeing might actually be empty and pretentious all along, but actually it might not be. And also, I mean, the other thing that it owes a debt to is um, the last ever film by Stanley Kubrick, Eyes Wide Shut. You've seen Eyes Wide Shut? Yes. You know, Tom Cruise and Nicole yeah, Kim. I know, I remember. Do you yes. remember the mansion scene from Eyes Wide Shut where Tom Cruise go infiltrates the masked orgy and it's, yeah. it's no, it's, it's sleaze, but it's played very sort of artily and very yes. slowly. Yeah. And I don't know whether you, do you like Eyes Wide Shut? I mean, do you think it's a good piece of work? Uh, it's okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm still in divine. I mean, I don't think it's horrible, but I don't think it's no masterpiece either. It's one. So I don't think it's Tom Cruise at his best. Whatever no, best I mean, is. well, he's okay, but no, that's one of his better performances. But still, the yeah. point about it being that, depending on your attitude to Eyes Wide Shut, you'll either find Sleeping Beauty sort of very beautiful and poetic and sort of creepy in yeah. a good way and a bad way, or you'll think this is pretentious empty hogwash. And no, if you're going to do sleaze, then shoot it like sleaze rather than shooting yeah. it like I've gone to the ballet. So. Mixed opinions. I'll give it the benefit of the doubt based upon my attitude to Savage Grace, but it's, no, it's not a hearty recommendation. So we're sort of struggling for a movie of the week, really. I don't think we are, actually. I mean, uh, Real Steel is the one that's going to be on widest release, so no, yeah. that's, that's the family film of the week. If you want to travel, then it's uh, the greatest movie ever sold. Right. That's the one you want to go see. Yes. Right. Well... Thanks very much. We'll be back next Saturday between... Well, I'm here between 8 and 11. You're here between 10 and 11. Yes. To and do our cult classic is... Carrie. They're all going to laugh at you. Right. So have a great week. Lion Heart Radio The voice of Northumberland